Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. You know, we've been in this series, Catch the Wind, and been talking about lifting our sails, this metaphor for saying, God, I'm just open. I'm ready for you to do whatever you want to do with me. And that we've, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to take us to places we've never thought we would go, right? That's where we've been in this series. And one of the things I said at the very f- forefront of this series is God wants to use, every, every human wants to be wants their life to make an impact. They want their life to be used by God. We all want that, but it doesn't always manifest that way sometimes for us, right? Like we don't, we want to be difference makers. We don't want to be place takers. We don't want to come to church and just, just occupy space until Jesus comes. We really want to make a difference in this world. And that's my prayer is that we as a church in 2023 will become a church of people, of a body, of an army of people that are making a difference in this world. One of, my, one of the things that, that from time to time, you know, when I, when I need perspective, when, I, when I'm battling with my will, my plans, um, and my plans aren't necessarily matching up with God's plans for my life, like God has plans, and I have plans, and God, come on, God, this is what I want, and, you know, there's that, there's that thing, I know it doesn't happen to any of you, it just happens to me, I know, I'm sure of that, but, uh, but when that happens, sometimes I need perspective, like I need to, to, to get a, an understanding of really what is it that God wants for me and, and I need to sync those things together. And so what I'll do is I'll generally go back and start reading stories, uh, biographical stories of, of people, men and women of the past who, who lived these incredible lives for God. And some of these lives were characterized by a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty, and yet they came out on the other side with a testimony and, and I just do that as a, as a spiritual habit for myself because what it does for me is it centers me. It brings me back to that original calling that I had in my life, that, that thing that the reason why I'm doing this every single day. One of my favorites is a guy by the name of Adoniram Judson. In 1813, at the age of 24, he set sail to India. And um, he eventually would spend most of his ministry time in Burma a very difficult, very hostile country. Um, at that, during this time, these missionaries, during that, during that period of the 1800s, they were called one-way missionaries. And the reason they were called one-way missionaries is because they would take all of their belongings and they would pack it in a coffin, <laughs> like their coffin. And the idea behind that is that they were not coming back home. They were leaving home and would never return again to see their family and friends. That's, that's their idea. And that did, did not happen necessarily all the time, but that was the idea behind it. And it was in a time when there was no FaceTime, there was no internet, there was no emails that you could send. You could write letters, but letters would take six months to nine months to get around the world. I mean, this is, this, can you imagine that? Like, our daughter, Caitlin, was born in Bangladesh, and, and if we lived in those days, we would have written a letter to our, my mother-in-law and my mom. Hey, we had a beautiful baby girl, Caitlin. And she would, they, they would find out like when Caitlin was nine months old. Like they didn't know that there, a baby had been born, they had a grandchild, but that's how, and that's how it was, right? These were these one-way missionaries as they were kept, uh, often called. So they set sail, he and his new wife, Anne, they set sail to, uh, to, to India. Um, before they left, very, 
right before he left, he had to propose to his future father-in-law for the hand of Anne. And uh, this is the proposal letter that he wrote to his father-in-law. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't even know that I can, I'm like, really? Okay. This is what he says. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. It almost sounds like I'm taking her hostage. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like, right? Really, but that's, that's, what, that's what's happening here. And it's a mentality that they had. Whether you can consent to her departure and her, subject, her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you and for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of heaven and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness? I have no idea what this guy was thinking when he got that letter. Ian, is that how you propose? Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I have no idea how, what, what he was thinking, you know. And if somebody was asking for my daughter's hand, you know, and they were saying something like this, I'd be like, no, you can't have her. What are you talking about, right? He was wise. He simply said she can make up her own mind. <laughs> and so they set sail in 1813 um, to Burma. They experienced one hardship after another. And this letter that he wrote to his father-in-law would... I don't think he realized how prophetic it would actually be. In 1824, Adoniram was in prison for 18 months. While he was in prison, he was tortured very badly. He wasted away. They would shackle his legs, pull him up by a, by a chain, and have him hanging upside down with just his, ne his shoulders, neck, and head on the floor. And they did that for three to four hours a day. They were trying to take the circulation of blood out of his legs so he couldn't walk anymore. So he became almost crippled. While in prison, he found out that his wife was pregnant, and so she would go to the prison every day, walk, walk two miles to prison every day, asking if they would please release him so that, you know, she can be with him while she was pregnant. The baby, she, she eventually had her baby while he was still in prison, little Maria, and after she had the baby, she got sick, her milk dried up, so the baby was not eating. And so she pleaded with the jailer. The jailer had mercy on them to allow Adoniram to come out for an hour or two a day. And he would take little Maria and he would go to the nearby villages asking nursing mothers to please feed their baby. After he was released, um, his wife Anne died. Six months later, little Maria would also die. <clears throat> You know, sometimes we need perspective of what it means when we say to Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you. Now, we hear stories like this, and we're like, I don't know, man, Rich, that seems like a lot to ask. Seems a little extreme. I'm not sure if that's what I'm looking for when, when I gave my life to Christ. I'm not sure if that's what I want. And I understand that. I don't want that either, necessarily. But can I say that one of the most miserable ways to live as a Christian is to say, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to do it in a way that's difficult 
or uncomfortable or inconvenient. So maybe I'll just follow at a distance. This kind of Christianity does not work. It does not work. To be a Christian means that you have surrendered your whole life. Now, I understand this is a process. I understand when you first come to faith in Jesus that it doesn't happen automatically right away, that we're in this journey of discipleship, and part of discipleship is learning how to surrender more and more and more and more of our life to him. And I hope that doesn't scare you away from discipleship because by the same token, it's the life that I have chosen, it's the life that I have loved, and it's the life that I would never trade for any other life out there. But by, def by definition, to be a follower of Christ that goes all in with him is that your life does not belong to you anymore. It's his. It's his. <clears throat> and when we as a church come together, all of us come together and have this desire and have this passion and this kind of purpose, we will change the world. We will. It's a phrase that you see consistently in the book of Acts is the, it's the phrase, all the believers. It was a common description of the church, early on especially. Like it's not just a, a, a selected group. It's not like the gifted among them. It was all the believers. All the believers were together. All the believers together were on mission. Not 10%, not 20%, not 50%. All of them were on mission together. All the believers. A lot of verses that give us, tell us this. Acts 2, 1 says, all the believers... We're, t we're meeting together. Verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Chapter three, verse 24, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer. Verse 32 says, all the believers were united in heart and mind. There was this incredible unity that existed in this early church. They had come together. They were one of mind, one of heart. That was what this church was. And that's my prayer for us as a church. I love, let me tell you something, I love this church. I love Life Church. I love the, gen the generous spirit that you have that's really, it's just, it sets you apart in many ways. Just look at that thing, you'll see. I love the socioeconomic and political, uh, you know, variety, diversity that we have here. I love that we're a multi-generational church. That's not just young people here. There's older people here too. I'm not one of them, but some of you are. <laughs> Me And Wayne says him, he's not either. <laughs> but one of the ways that the enemy wants to neutralize a church is to divide the church along these lines. For us to get so consumed with the politics of our world that we lose sight of Jesus Christ. For us to get so consumed with justice issues around the world that we lose sight of Jesus Christ. For us to get so consumed, whether he's liberal or he's, or he's, or he's conservative, that we lose sight of Jesus Christ. We will not be a part of that. We will not be a part of that. We, all the believers, will come together under the banner of Jesus Christ and we will change the world that way. That's what we've been called to as a church. The subtitle of this series is Unleashing the Full Force of the Church. Full force means you and me, all of us together. Okay? Full force of the church doesn't mean that there's a staff that we have hired. They're the ones that are going to do all the work and boom, we're going to unleash the full force of the church. That's not what that means. Full force doesn't mean, well, there's a bunch of really 
man, you know, really uh, advanced Christians in this church. They're, they're the ones that are going to do the work. No, the full force of the church is every single one of us, all of us together are going to work together on the mission that Christ has called us to. Every one of us. That means that I'm not afraid to ask you for help. It means that we're not going to put, that we're going to put before you some opportunities to serve and we're not going to be shy about it. <clears throat> it's all the church. We are all joining together on the mission that God has called us on. All right? So with that in mind, I just want to ask you a quick question. Are you simply a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of him? There's a lot of fans in the American church. You know, people who love to sit on the, in the bleachers, watch the game at a distance, but not really participate in the game. People who want to follow close enough to Jesus to be associated with him, but not so close that it requires anything from them. I mean, Jesus didn't say, uh, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And eh, never mind, you don't have to do that. That's not what he said. He calls us to this life of going all in for him. Jesus wants our lives to be a story of the power of God at work in us. And as he works in us, it spills over into our community and it changes the people around us. That's really what, he, what we're called into. A great example of this is the Apostle Paul. Um, he grew up in a very religious home. In his, in, his, in his home, it was all about performance. It was all about rules. It was all about regulations. And some of you understand that because maybe you grew up in that kind of environment as well. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do. It's not about how we perform. It's not about image management, make sure that we look the part of a Christian. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus has done for us by grace. Through faith, that's the gospel. We have been invited, we have been called into that. And when we live that way, we live a different kind of life. Paul, on the other hand, was very religious. In fact, he says of himself that he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. That means, for, for Pharisee, that meant, that meant that they had the entire, what is today the Old Testament, for them it was the scriptures, what is today for us the Old Testament, they had the entire Old Testament memorized. Within that body of uh, Scripture that they had memorized, there was 300 plus verses about the coming Messiah. Paul had them all memorized. And yet when Jesus came, Paul missed it. How ironic is that? It's interesting how religion can do that. Religion can inoculate you from the real thing. Paul was so convinced that Jesus was a threat, a threat to Israel, a threat to the to, to Judaism, a threat to their, to their culture and world, that he made it his mission to chase down Christians, to persecute them, to imprison them, and eventually execute them. That was his mission. Chapter 8, verse 3 of, of Acts, it says, but, but Saul, or Paul, as we, we, we use the word Paul, it was his, his, name, his Greek name is Paul, his Jewish name is Saul, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. To be a Christian then was very, very dangerous. There was no room for just fans in this early church. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. I mean, he was zealous about killing Christians. That was his mission. 
So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogue in Damascus. He requested letters. He requested letters. When we read that, we're like, oh, you're smart. You understand what that means. But you know what he was asking for? He was asking for a hunting license. That's what he was asking for. There's a breed out there that I want to take out. They're a pest. We want to destroy them. So will you give me permission to hunt them down? Asking for the cooperation and the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted, he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So he heads off to Damascus. about a four to six day journey. He's off to Damascus. He's got his partner. He's got a hunting license in hand. He's got his partners with him to help arrest Christians. They're going to get these guys. They're going to put them in, sh in chains, bring them back to prison, try them, and then execute them for blasphemy. But then on the way, something happens to him. There's this light that shines, this bright light that shines, and he is blinded by the light, as you know that line. But not metaphorically, physically. He was literally blinded by this light. And he hears this voice, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't know what, who this person is, so he says, who are you? I don't even know who you are. And then he hears the voice again, says, it is Jesus that you are persecuting. I don't know if you see what's happening here, and what God is doing in Paul's life. I don't know if you recognize what's happening. I mean, and he's doing it for some of you. In this past four weeks, as we've been in this series, I know that some of you have been having this same, this same experience, this same Damascus experience. Maybe you weren't literally blinded, but God is changing your trajectory. And what we see here, the extent, what God will do to basically release you from the, from the leash that you, that's got you held back. How far God will go to set you free from that. And that's what God is doing here. He interrupts, he interrupts Paul's life and gives him a new perspective. So here we have Paul. He's proud. He's mighty. Like he's the, the big sheriff in town that's going to take out the Christians, right? But now he's been humbled. And he finds himself in this place of dependence and vulnerability. And I think... That's really where we need to go, you and I, all of us, to a place where we say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And we fully surrender to him. We're vulnerable. We're dependent. But that's what God uses. Amen? I know this is my story, and I know some of your stories as well, that, as well, that you, are, you came to, maybe, maybe you've already come to a place where you were, it was a decision between being all in or living a blinded Christian life. And I submit to you that God's calling us to go all in. All of us together, all in. Amen? Amen. So through the book of Acts, you read about Paul's unleashed story. There's these 10 plus churches that he plants, that he starts, mostly of non-Jewish believers. He writes 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Mostly, most of them were just letters that he would write to churches and pastors, basically encouraging them to stay on mission. In the book of Acts, we read about three of Paul's missionary journeys. We're not going to talk about all the missionary journeys, but I do want to focus in on the first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13, they're in Antioch of Syria. This is like an outpost, mission outpost for the church in Jerusalem. Church in Jerusalem, the church started in Jerusalem, and they started fanning out, and they came to this place called Syrian, Antioch in Syria. There's two cities of Antioch, but Antioch in Syria. And that's where, that's where this church is at. Paul and Barnabas are there at this church, 
And it says here, while they were worshiping, so they're in this worship service, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the work which I have called them to. Like they are, they are there in Syrian Antioch working, but God is calling them to do something different. Like there's this call to go somewhere else, right? And so, for that, so, and so after that, they fasted and prayed. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. I love this very simple depiction of this early church. Like Paul and Barnabas were probably their most effective communicators, the most effective leaders. But then God says, I want those two to go somewhere else. And the church didn't fight back. The church said, no, 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 we need to keep them here. The church wasn't about, you know, it wasn't about making all the members happy. It wasn't a social club or a country club. They respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They see that, that Paul and Barnabas are being called. And so they pray about it. They realize, oh, you're called. We agree. Now go. I can't wait. I can't wait as a pastor. I can't wait for the day. I, I can leave then, by the way. For those of you that think, feel that way. <laughs> I can leave that day, the, day that, the day that we have young men and women coming to us and saying, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to Burma. I'm quitting my job. I'm going to, to Bangladesh or India. I'm quitting my job because God's called me to the inner cities of this, of this country. I'm quitting my job because, because God is calling me. And we will hear that call. We will pray. We will agree with that call. And we will send them out. I can't wait till there's an army of people rising up from within Life Church, being called all over this world. That's what this church was. That's what I feel like we need to be as well. As you read through these missionary journeys, you'll see a few characteristics that, are, that, that separate fans from followers. Okay, now there's a bunch of them, but I'm just going to focus in on a couple phrases that I think are important for us. I think if we want to be a church of influence, if we want to be a church of impact, we need to listen to this, okay? The first phrase I would give you that Mark Paul's ministry and his unleashed journey was sacrificial commitment, Sacrificial commitment. We don't really like this word. Now get it. Sometimes we don't like this word because we feel like the sacrifice has already been paid, right, by Jesus. I mean, why should we? Jesus doesn't expect us. It's true. Like this right here does not save you. You're not more spiritual because you sacrificially commit. But being followers of the way, following Jesus and following his path will always lead to this. Sacrificial commitment. Paul was committed to that. He committed himself to following Jesus in a way that was not comfortable, that it required sacrifice. Sacrifice is saying yes, even when it means saying no to what I want. And so the question is, is that your story? You find yourself in your discipleship walk, in your, in, your, in your growing relationship with Jesus, you find yourself saying, okay, I want this, but Lord, I want what you want more. Sacrificial commitment. Like if what Jesus wants for your life is always what you want for your life, there might be something missing. I don't think you understood that one. 
let me, let me flip it around. Like if what you want for your life is always what Jesus wants for your life, there might be something missing. Even Jesus himself had to say, not my will, but yours be done. Sacrificial commitment. You see this in Paul's life. I mean, just read through his missionary journeys. They were exhausting. Like he walked everywhere. Literally, he walked. When I, when I was reading this this week, I was thinking of Forrest Gump. Remember that time in Forrest Gump where he was like, just started running? And somebody came along and says, hey, why are you running? He says, I like running. <laughs> and like, Paul was just, I like walking. <laughs> like he was just walking everywhere. I mean, it just, it's just exhausting to think of all, all that he went through. Moody Atlas of the Bible, I'm sure you've already read it, describes the physical demands that Paul faced on his missionary trips. It says this, the New Testament registers the equivalent of about 13,400 airline miles that Paul would have journeyed. He would have walked 13,400 miles. He would have sailed across stormy seas. We know of several shipwrecks that he was in. The roads would have been primitive paths, many of which were unsafe, largely controlled by bandits. And there would have been mountainous terrain as well. I mean, just a lot, a lot of difficulty. And again and again, he had to choose commitment over comfort. And again and again and again, so will you as a follower of Jesus. <clears throat> Second phrase I want to draw your attention to is defiant joy. This is a great counterbalance to sacrificial commitments. Bring up defiant joy if it's there. It might be there. May not be there. <laughs> there it is. <clears throat> Sacrificial commitment, defiant joy. The reason I think it's a great counterbalance is because sometimes when we get in this routine of saying, okay, Lord, I buy in to, 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 to sacrificial commitment, but then we walk around with these long faces like, look how much I'm sacrificing for God. And we're just, we're just so, just, we want everybody to notice that I am very spiritual because I'm, very, I'm sacrificing to God. But Paul wasn't that way. Paul had this thing about him. There was this defiant joy about him. There was this time where he was, it literally was beaten and then they stoned him. The Bible says stoned him to death in the city of Lystra and they threw him outside of the city, left him for dead. And it says that Paul got up, shook the dust off and went to the next town. Now, if that would have been me, I, might have got, I would have gotten up, I would have shaken the dust off I would have definitely gone to the next town and not stayed in that one, <laughs> right? But you would have heard me complain the whole way. I would have been like, man, this, this, this missionary stuff really stinks. Why are we doing this? Let's go to somewhere easier. But that wasn't Paul. Paul had this defiant joy. I want to finish with this one story in Acts chapter 16. Paul is on his second missionary journey with a guy named Silas. In verse 22 it says, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas because of their preaching. And the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with rods. Like this is now multiple times that Paul has been beaten for being a missionary. They were severely beaten and then, <clears throat> and then were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into inner dungeon and clamped her feet in, in the stocks. I mean, like, this is a rough day for a pastor, okay? Like, he's been beaten and incarcerated. And then they're in prison, right? And they have nowhere to go. 
And again, Paul has been beaten so many times, I'm sure he could be, he could be talking to, Bar- to, to, to Silas and saying, Silas, man, this lifestyle, we, gotta, we, we need a lifestyle change. We need to do something different. Like this is hard work, preaching the gospel. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he looks over at Silas and says, hey, Silas, like we're stuck here. What do you want to do? So like, I don't know, man. Um, what if we sing some worship songs? <laughs> and, P- and Paul's like, that's exactly what I was thinking. Let's sing some worship songs. And then they start singing some worship songs. They are in shackles. They are in the inner dungeon. They're in prison and they're worshiping God. And it's no wonder this jailer at the end of this story gets saved because he saw their faith. He saw their defiant joy. This earthquake happens and they have an opportunity to flee, but they don't. The jailer's about to kill himself and they stop the jailer from doing that. They're not vengeful. I mean, they could have. They could have said, hey, that guy tortured us. That guy really beat us up. We're gonna let him kill himself. No. Instead, instead they're compassionate towards him. Here's something important I want you to see. A big part of the church being unleashed into this world is that when we face persecution, when we face suffering, when we face hardship, when we, are, when, when we face all of these things, we respond with joy and peace. We respond with joy and peace. And that's who we are. I mean, we're not overwhelmed. We're not struck down. We're not crushed. We respond to hardship and suffering differently because of Jesus. Jesus has given us a greater hope you and I, we live in a world where we're going to be facing a lot of difficulty and a lot of challenges. We'll experience challenge after challenge to our faith. And we have a choice to make. We can shake our fist at the world. We can try to vote in a new Congress or vote in a new whatever and try to change things. We can get anxious. We can get depressed. We can panic if we want, but the economy's kind of going kind of crazy. We're going to panic. Or we can lean into Jesus and stare that challenge in the face with a defiant joy. And I submit to you, that's what Jesus is calling us to do. This world cannot take this away from you. We are people who follow Jesus, and he gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. <clears throat> I was, a, I was at a conference this week, and I, um, I don't know if I can get through this story, actually, because I just shared with you about Adoniram Judson, and I'm sure that some of you sitting here are thinking, well, Rich, come on, that was the 1800s. Times were different then. Um, I heard this story from a guy that we're going to actually have here in March. I encourage you to be here. His name is Paul her tag, I think. <laughs> um, and um, he was talking about a girl named Hannah in the country of Nepal. In Nepal, young girls often get trafficked very quickly into sex slavery. And so Hannah's older sister had gotten taken and sold. It was a, it was a, a, a neighbor friend that basically said, hey, you want to go see the town? And took him in a truck, and he just sold her for $30. And she got 
shipped off to Mumbai. <clears throat> Hannah was experiencing a lot of, they're from the, uh, I can't remember the name of the tribe, but a, the low caste tribe of, of Hinduism there. So they just had no rights. And she was experiencing a lot of anxiety and a lot of, you know, just frustration that her sister was gone. She was afraid for her own life. She got very sick. So they went to the hospital. And the doctor, when he realized that she was from the low caste, tried to rape her. She escaped. Told her father about it. Her father said, don't tell anyone or else they will never treat us. A guy came to the village to start talking to them about Jesus and she found that this was the only way that she could ever find hope and so she found hope and then that village they organized to bring together a, a group of people that would protect their young girls from being trafficked. And as they, they started creating this organization, um, it turned into a hostel in the Kathmandu where they would take these girls and at, at young age, they'd take these girls to this hostel and they would grow up you know, in a Christian environment learning about Jesus and also being educated and ultimately being, you know, going to college. So Hannah got, went to that, to that hostel and, <clears throat> and then when she, she graduated from high school, she went off to college. She graduated from college first. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of the, the tribal group. First person in that tribe to ever go to college. She got two Fulbright scholarships to the state. She did those. But her heart was pulling her back to Nepal. And so she goes back to Nepal. And in the interview that I watched, she said, she said um, they asked her, what do you want to do with your future? She said, I want, to be the, I want to be the prime minister of Nepal. The story continues where she has just made incredible inroads. She's now works, she, she now works in the government in this agency that's, that's protecting young girls from being trafficked. trafficked. And um, the village that she came from now has a church of over 300 people. And the pastor is a man who sold her older sister into slavery, sex slavery. I know that feels appalling but this is the power of the gospel. And this is what you and I are being called into. I don't want to play it safe anymore, guys. I don't want us to just simply go through our Christian walk, you know, make sure that we have enough money in the savings account, enough money in the bank and all of that. And yeah, one day, you know, when I die, I can have a nice funeral. Great job, Rich, you're a great Christian. There's a world around us that needs Jesus. And you and I are called to do something about it. Let's not be fans only. Let's be followers of, of Christ. Amen. Let's all stand. Cedar Rapids, stand with us as well. <clears throat> I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a moment of worship. Prayer teams are going to be here in the left and right. And uh, I just want to, I, I don't know. I just don't even know how to end this message except just to call you to make that commitment to go all in for Christ. I can give you a list of different ways that that looks for you, but you know what you know. You know where you are on the edge, where you're saying yes to you and no to God. You know that. I don't have to tell you what that is. You know it. And so I'm just simply inviting you to start saying yes to God. 
live a life of sacrificial commitment, live a life of defiant joy. And if you do that, you'll make an impact in this world. I promise you that. And if we do that collectively, we can change the world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, because I know that you're here. I know, Holy Spirit, that even at this moment, you are challenging, you're speaking, you're calling. Father, even maybe in this room, there are individuals that are saying, Jesus, I know you're calling me to the mission field, but I've resisted that. So I pray right now, Father, that you will speak and that we will listen and that we will respond with yes, yes, yes to you, Jesus. Right now, Father, in Jesus' name, set us free from the leashes that are holding us back and set us on fire for you, God, to change the world around us. We ask it in Jesus' name.